Peter Coe. I'm the CAO for Math at Unbounded. Uh, happy to be chatting today with Bill McCallum, a man who needs no introduction, but he is a math professor, one of the lead authors of the Math Standards, founder at Illustrative Mathematics, and just an incredible individual that's contributed so much to this field. We're really happy to be talking with him today. So this is a question I've asked a few different people, um, and I'd love to get your take on it. I've been in education for not a long time, but not a short time either, so about over 10 years now, and it seems like the standards have changed, right? The standards change maybe every five years, and it's never been that big a deal, and not always been something that people pay a lot of attention to. So I'd be curious to know why is it important that we're paying attention this time as, as the standards have changed? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that we have common standards now, and previously each state had its own standards, and they really were very different. The example I always use is addition of fractions was a topic that was introduced anywhere from grade one to grade seven, depending on which state you were in. Most states did it around grades three, four, or five, even so, that's three grade levels with a significant number of states in each one. So simply having an agreement about what kids should learn each year I think is enormous. I think it's a platform that people haven't yet figured out how to stand on. People take the standards very seriously. One of the reasons they take started taking standards seriously was the increased accountability requirements, which reached a crescendo, I think, sometime in the last five years, and maybe now people are beginning to back away from the most extreme version of that. I hope that that leads to people looking at this other advantage of having common standards, which I don't think has really been taken advantage of, which is simply you can share information across state lines, you can share curriculum, you can share teacher preparation programs. Teacher preparation used to be something that had to be pretty generic because you didn't know which state your teachers were going to be teaching in. So having a teacher preparation program in a university that really focuses on the specific mathematics people need to teach, I think that could be very powerful. So. That's one of, I, that doesn't answer the question of why people did take the standards so seriously. That's always been a bit of a mystery to me because of the history that you just gave. People used to not even know about them. So why did they take the Common Core seriously? I think it was a good thing. I don't know why it happened. Got it. So the math standards have these three design principles, focus, coherence, and rigor. There's a lot of misconceptions about what these ideas are. What's, what's your take as a lead author? What, what should we think when we hear those ideas of focus? Um, focus means focusing on one thing or a small set of things rather than a very large number of things in each grade level. It doesn't mean doing less, but it means doing less at each grade level so you can move on to other things at the next grade level. So it means stripping away some of the extraneous material that used to be in the curriculum in order to be able to really do a solid job of the stuff that you're supposed to be learning that, that year. Coherence, to me, means telling a story, having mathematics seem like a story, having progressions across grade levels where you build on what happened before, you, you understand why you're doing addition of fractions with like denominators in grade four to prepare for addition of fractions with unlike denominators in grade five. You, you understand that sequence, you see how it builds. Coherence also means making connections within a grade level. Connecting multiplication in grade three with finding the area of a rectangle, uh, that's another aspect of, of making connections and coherence. Rigor means what I think of 
the way I think of the word rigor is it's like a rigorous training program for a support. When you're training to be an athlete, you don't just exercise one muscle, you don't just do one sort of exercise, you have a balance. And so rigor means balancing conceptual understanding, procedural fluency, and applications of mathematics. So we're, you know, as an organization, we're, we're trying to support teachers that are trying to learn about these new standards. What advice would you give to someone that wanted to really learn more about the mathematics in the standards? Are there things they should do? Are there places they should, they should look to do that? Well, that's a very broad question, and it depends a lot on the grade level. I think there are good resources out there, including, of course, Unbounded, but Illustrative Mathematics, the Student Achievement Partners website has lots of good resources for teachers wanting to learn about the standards. I do think sometimes people get overwhelmed with there's just too much to learn. So picking one thing, and one thing that relates to your own experience as a teacher and relates to the grade level you teach, Understanding the progression of fractions is a good thing to pick if you're a grades three through five teacher. I think for grades K through two teachers, understanding the difference between and importance of the two domains, number and operations in base 10 and operations in algebraic thinking. A good resource is the progressions documents, but those are quite difficult documents to read. I think they're fairly advanced, but if you're a teacher leader, you really want to dig deeply into the meaning of the standards. Those are good resources. So one of the features that makes the standards kind of unique is that we have content standards and practice standards. So I want to talk a little bit about the practices. If you were to say to someone that had never seen the practice standards before or was trying to understand what they are, what are they? What are the practices? Um, I like to call them standards for mathematical practice rather than practices because really the mathematical practice is a single thing. It's a complex thing, and the standards for mathematical practice are eight different viewpoints on it. But mathematical practice is what mathematicians do, what students do when they're practicing mathematics, if, if, they're, if they're learning mathematics in a way that means they'll be able to use it later on and understand it. So I, I think you could ask someone to describe surgical practice, for example, and you might want someone to list what are the important things obviously uh, making sure that you're in a microbe-free environment, for example. There you could list standards for surgical practice. And so the standards for mathematical practice are describing the doing of mathematics rather than describing the content of mathematics. And a lot of the time we attend to the content as if it's inert matter that can be just sort of stuffed into the heads of students. And I think that is what results in a lot of students ending up not really having much ability to use that content. They've never thought of it as a, as a thing they do stuff with. So we thought it was important to describe what a student looks like who's proficient in mathematics, who understands it, who, who can explain it. So we have content standards and we have standards for mathematical practice. Right. Try to say it the right way. How should teachers be thinking about the, the interplay between content and practice? Well, it's very complex. I mean, and I think um, I can say more easily what 
they should not be doing rather than what sure. they should be doing because I see this happen quite a lot, which is a sort of game of tagging things with practice standards. Now, of course, if you're assessing the standards, you probably need to do that to a certain extent. You need to see these things happening. Um, but setting aside the, the difficulties of assessment, the practice standards, I can imagine a curriculum that satisfies the standards for mathematical practice where the practice standards are not written out anywhere, but they're embedded in the activities that students do. You have problems that students work on that they talk about, that this classroom time is structured so that they explain to each other what they're doing. You have problems where there's not too much scaffolding, where students have to construct the scaffolding themselves. They have to make sense of the problem and persevere in solving it. You have situations where it helps to look for and make use of structure. But you don't necessarily have to put up a little MP7 flag at that point. I would also say that the practice standards are about what's happening in the classroom. A curriculum by itself doesn't make things happen in the classroom. A teacher makes things happen in the classroom. And so a curriculum can be friendly towards the standards for mathematical practice in the sense that it can provide rich opportunities for teachers to have students engaging in those practices. But it's the teacher who actually does that with that curriculum. So let's talk a little bit about the specific standards for mathematical practice. Uh, as you mentioned, they are something that happen instructionally. They're, they're ways of, of engaging with the math that, that teachers are charged with orchestrating. And it can be difficult sometimes to know exactly what that looks like. So let's take a look at a few of these, and, and it would be great to get your take on, on what they might look like at the elementary level, at the middle level, and, and high school. So maybe we could start with, with MP1, um, which is uh, make sense of problems and persevere in solving them. What does that look like sort of across grades? Well, I think that's one that is very clearly a cross-grade practice, and in some sense it looks the same at all grade levels, namely students are really struggling with the material that they're looking at, but they're getting somewhere with it, and they're engaging with difficult problems that they do have to persevere on. Now, what those problems are, of course, changes. So an elementary school student might be looking at a word problem that is worded in a way that doesn't give away which operation to use in order to solve important aspect of word problems is that they get various different formulations and so students have to make sense of what is actually being said. They have to figure out the context from the description and then figure out a way of identifying the quantities they need to find rather than saying there's a three and a five and a more in the problem so I'm going to add three and five and get eight. The same student in high school might be engaging in a much richer modeling problem, a problem where they're given a situation for outside mathematics, they have to represent it mathematically somehow. They might have to go off and collect information about that situation they're not given, do some research on the web. They have to go through the whole modeling cycle where you represent a problem mathematically, do some mathematical work and get a mathematical solution then relate that back to the context. So I, I think that's a practice standard. I would also say probably it's the easiest to identify. You can see when students are trying to make sense of problems and you can see when they're persevering. A frequent refrain I've heard, right, is my students can't do this. I can't, if I give them a problem that's challenging or 
it's too hard, mm -hmm. and, and they, um, I don't want to subject my students to this experience of pain and struggle. Mm -hmm. What's your response there? I mean, is there is there some is there a way to to make MP1 sort of more palatable, or are there resources or things you've seen that 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 would help? That's a difficult problem to solve because I think that's a characteristic of American education system that kids and teachers expect that problems should be solvable in a few minutes. And the idea that there's a problem that's not solvable in a few minutes is alien to the system. I think sometimes I get students coming into the university who have this idea that they should just keep on going. They'll spend 35 minutes getting nowhere, staring at a blank page. That's not a productive use of time. And one of the ideas I think that would be great to get into the system is the idea of problems that you return to the next day. You don't spend 35 minutes, but you spend five minutes and think, hmm, I don't have any ideas. And then you let it go away, do something else, and come back, repeatedly attempt, make repeated attempts on a problem. That's the way we solve problems in real life, by the way. Everyone understands that. So math is just the same. And I think if we can have a, a reservoir of problems that students can, teachers can draw on and students can try, that are not impossible, but that, um, that benefit from repeated attention, that would be one thing. I would also suspect that a lot of the research that's been done on the growth mindset, things like that, could be helpful here. The idea, there's no point persevering if you really don't believe you're gonna get anywhere. So if you have a mindset that trying to solve a problem will eventually get you somewhere, then I think you have an environment where kids are more, are more willing to try it. But teachers who say, my kids can't do that, that's difficult. I don't know what to do about that. Positive examples of kids succeeding in doing that obviously would help. Yeah. I used to give my students a problem and they'd struggle with it and then I'd stop and I'd say, how long do you think you were working on that? And they'd say, five minutes, ten, you know, and the answer was 45 seconds. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then I had a, a friend of mine who uh, ended up getting a PhD in, in math and I used to sit and say, I got a friend who's working on a problem, you know how long he's been working on it? And I'd say two years. So yeah. I think it's it's kind of I'm not sure if that's the positive example you're referring to, but but sort of letting students in on the idea that struggling with problems is is the way problems it, are solved. It's right? a cultural thing. Um, Alan Schoenfeld did some research where they gave a, an impossible problem yeah, okay. to kids. And they gave it to US kids, to Japanese kids, and Korean kids. The you know American students would try for a few minutes and give up. The Korean students wouldn't give up. In fact, they had to tell them they go for hours. And they had to tell them, no, this problem's impossible. They were really <laughs> pissed off, by the way. But, I mean, I don't think they expected that it would, they would have to actually stop the students from working on them. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, I mean, the kids are the same, yeah. right? They, but they grew up in different cultures with different attitudes to struggle. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk then about uh, MP3. Okay. Uh, it's another, another big one. Construct viable arguments and critique the reasoning of others. Tell us a little bit about what that looks like. Yeah, and I think that's one where you really do see a difference in different grade bands. I think in high school, you want kids to be able to construct essentially mathematical proofs, not necessarily completely formally expressed, but chains of logical reasoning um, in geometry, proving geometric theorems and so on. You also want them to be able to dissect proofs, find 
that's critiquing the reasoning of others. You want them to be able to detect error. You want them to be able to think of constructing a counterexample to something that's not true. In elementary school, it looks different, but I would say that students are doing something which is proof-like. They're not using formal language. They're not necessarily making quantified statements in the way that you want them to later on. They're not necessarily understanding the difference between checking a few cases and then proving, saying, showing that something's true always. But you're trying to lead them towards that. There's all of Deborah Ball's work and videos with kids working with even and odd numbers, trying to explain why the sum of two odd numbers is even, which is a good example of the reasoning kids can go through in elementary school. I think what you're listening for is one of the one of the things I when I used to teach teachers I, I would try them to listen for is reasoning language so when you're listening to an explanation of how a student solved an equation for example there are two types of language uh, this would be a good middle school example sometimes students will talk about moving things around you know I moved the three over the other side I you know moved the three that was the coefficient down underneath over here. They'll talk about the solving process purely as a pictorial thing. There's no meaning there. Sometimes they'll talk about I subtracted three from both sides or I know that if x plus two is five that means x is five minus two. They're talking about the meaning of the operations and they're talking about what it means for two things to be equal. So I think that listening for that sort of reasoning language, even if it's not what you would call formal proof, that's another example of uh, constructing viable arguments. Yeah, I feel like there's sort of the, the classic case. I solved the problem, you asked me how I solved it, and I simply described the procedures that I did, right? And so I think what you're saying is the bar is a little higher than that, right? Yeah. So it's not just a description, a play-by-play. -play. It's not a description yeah. of what you did. Yeah. It's an explanation of why that worked. Sure, sure. Yeah. And what about it at the elementary level where, you know, students are still kind of developing their fluency with language, right? What, what does this look like in, in elementary school? So I think it's important that MP3 not be understood as a vocabulary requirement. I think students are producing their own language, their own ways of saying things, and you're trying to help them to be clearer. Often there are opportunities for you to request a clarification of a point, and I think that's much more important than making sure that they use correct language or use standard language. That is a goal, but making it an upfront requirement defeats the purpose. A good example of this is when kids are working with addition equations, they're making tens, they're doing, they're explaining why 8 plus 7 is 15 because they can take a 2 from the 7 and put it with the 8. You don't want them to be formalistically talking about the properties of operations and naming them by their standard terms. I mean, it's okay if they do, it's great if they do, but it's not a requirement. What you're listening for is their reasoning and whether they're describing those operations. What that reminds me of is there's a piece of the, I think it's in the front matter to the standards, where it talks about mathematical understanding and it says a part of mathematical understanding is students being able to explain why something is true and there's a little bit in there that says in a way that is age appropriate yes. or something like that. And that's, I think, a very important idea to keep in mind, certainly with, with MP3. 
A good resource, by the way, is there are, we do have great level elaborations of the practice standards. They're available on my blog, commoncoretools.me. They're probably available all over the place, but... Yes, definitely a great, a great resource. Okay, let's talk a little bit then about, um, about MP4, mm -hmm. Model with Mathematics. This is another important one. Um, tell us a little bit about, about that. Okay, so I think modeling really doesn't reach its full authentic um, expression until high school. I think, you know, the modeling cycle that is described in the standards, where you taking a problem outside mathematics, representing it, and then reinterpreting the answers in terms of that context. That's, that's just something I don't think you expect students to really be able to do authentically until high school. You can practice. So solving word problems is a sort of baby modeling in the sense that you're giving an artificial context, but it's a context which is not inherently mathematical. You're talking about you know bunnies or frogs or something. And you're expecting students to take their understanding of number and represent that context and then come up with an answer. That's a sort of baby modeling. And I think the modeling grows. I think in middle school, you expect them to solve fairly complex word problems. And you're also beginning to get students working with statistics and representing statistical questions and interpreting statistical data in middle school. That's moving towards the more authentic modeling. One thing modeling isn't, and this is a common misconception, the word model in the English language can also mean a situation where I take a mathematical idea and I model it with a physical object. That's sort of the reverse of the usage of the word in the standards. And so people, I think, in elementary school often think modeling means physical models of mathematical ideas. And that's really not the way the word is, is intended in the standards. Sure. And you have, uh, so you've named word problems, right, as, you know, modeling to the full extent is described in high school, in elementary school and middle school. The baby modeling, as you put it, is often done using word problems. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you'd say about sort of what is the relationship between word problems and modeling? In other words, are students doing modeling if they're solving word problems? Is, is there something more to it than that? What, what would you say to our listeners as they think about the, the, this kind of baby modeling? Well, an problems? important aspect of modeling is coming up with a mathematical representation of a situation. So if you have a problem like in kindergarten, which is, you know, there were three frogs on a log, two more frogs jumped onto the log, how many frogs are there? Let's take two different ways you might solve that problem. A student might sort of have counters. They might put three counters out to represent the three there. They might, might put two more on and they count how many they've got. They've got five. That's one way a student might solve it. Another student might say, oh, three, uh, three, I've got three on a log, two more jump on. Oh, that's three plus two. Uh, three plus two equals five. Now, I would call that second representation of the problem a mathematical model. It's a non-trivial step to take the situation of the frogs jumping over the log and in your head represent that as an addition. That's modeling. You've taken a mathematical object, an equation, 3 plus 2 equals 5, and you've used it to represent a real-world situation. So, I mean, that's one of the aspects of rehearsing for real modeling. 
Now, yeah, there's another aspect to it, which is going the other way. When you get the five, what does that mean? Oh, that means there are five frogs on the line. That's also uh, an aspect of modeling. So I think if you're approaching word problems, even from kindergarten or first grade, as uh, opportunities to write down uh, number equations, opportunities to make meaning from your answers, then, then you're rehearsing for modeling. Okay, so I want to talk about one more practice, which might be my favorite, I'm not sure changes, but it's MP7, uh -huh. which is uh, look for and make use of structure. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that one. That's one that I think is one of the most difficult ones for people to, uh, to know what it means. Paradoxically, from a mathematician's point of view, that's to me what mathematics is all about, which is uh, looking at a mathematical problem and seeing something in it that might be hidden. The example that I was talking about earlier, 9 plus 6, you see the 6 as a 1 plus 5. You did that purposefully because you knew that the 9 needed a 1 to make a 10. That's an example of looking for and making use of structure. In this case, you're looking for the base 10 structure that's hidden inside that addition problem in order to be able to write down the answer. So. That's an example from second grade, first grade. An example from algebra is similar really in a way. You're looking at an algebraic expression and you're trying to see it as made up of parts. You might have a particular purpose. You might want to see that this expression is always positive. It could be a very complicated expression, but maybe it's surrounded by parentheses and it's squared. So being able to actually ignore all the mess inside the parentheses and say, oh, yeah, that's something squared, it's positive or zero. That's another example of looking for and making use of structure at a, at a very high level. In geometry, there are all sorts of situations where you have to think about some hidden structure in a problem. You have to draw an auxiliary line. If you want, you have to drop a perpendicular in a triangle. That enables you to see the formula for the area of the triangle, because you already know that a right triangle is half the base times the height, because it's half the rectangle, or you break a triangle into two right triangles. That's another example of seeing a structure. The make use of is important, and it sometimes gets ignored. Just looking for it, yeah, well you can see all sorts of things, but you're looking for it purposely in order for your use, because you want to get somewhere. So I often want to emphasize that it's look for and make use of, it's not just look for. I've often seen people saying, oh, structure everywhere, because I, I suppose you could say structure everywhere, because like, where is there no structure? But it's the purposeful looking, it's looking for structures that will help you get somewhere. That's an important aspect of that standard. So I want to run an idea past you. This is some thinking uh, I've had. One of my favorite standards is AAPR1, which has these sort of two parts. One, which is fairly innocuous, which is about adding, subtracting, and multiplying polynomials. The other is a little deeper, which says basically something about understanding that polynomials have a structure that's analogous to the integers. Is it fair to say that that's an example of, of an opportunity for, for MP7, and I guess one of the ways I've started to think about MP7, and again, I want you to critique and evaluate my, my reasoning, but is that it is a way of helping students see 
mathematics as coherent. So in other words, the there's sort of a structure to, say, multiplying that is consistent regardless of what I'm multiplying. Is that fair? or, or is Yeah, that, no, that's or a very good far? example. Multiplying polynomials is sort of like multiplying multi-digit numbers. In fact, it's sort of easier because you'd never have to carry. And seeing that commonality uh, is useful. Seeing that polynomials form a system like the number system, uh, like the probably system of um, whole numbers or, or integers, because you can't divide them necessarily, that's useful as well. It helps people attend to the fact that x is just a number and that you can treat it as such. So that's not an example I, I've thought of before as an example of MP7, but I certainly think it is. So I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the content standards and, and a few areas that are important and, and interesting. So one of them is about ratio and proportion and, and sort of thinking particularly about this cluster in grade six, the six RPA cluster, understand mm -hmm. ratio concepts and use ratio reasoning to solve problems. What's, what's important there and, and what's, what's important to notice about sixth grade ratio study? Well, I think one thing that's important to notice is a fairly firm stance on what the meaning of the word ratio is. Now, in everyday life, people use the word ratio in all sorts of different ways, and often they use it to be synonymous with fraction. That's a perfectly natural thing to do if you understand what you're doing. Um, I think people who have a very mature understanding of ratios, rates, proportional relationships often have compressed all those ideas into one ball that they understand. But that takes time to develop. And a ratio in the standards is restricted in meaning to one of the many meanings it has in real life for the purpose of simplicity and for the purpose of developing a careful progression of ideas so that the sixth graders can get there. And so we define a ratio to be two numbers, not a single number. A ratio is not the same thing as a fraction. I think that's an important point to notice. You know, confusing ratios with fractions can lead to misconceptions about addition of fractions because if I think that if I have a classroom where the ratio of there are three boys and four girls in another classroom where there are five boys and seven girls and I want to combine those classrooms, I'm going to add the numerators and denominators to get a combined class. Well, of course, that's not the way to add fractions. And so if I don't, if I don't make a clear distinction between ratios and fractions, you can, I, can, I think if kids see those numbers as being parts of a ratio, then when they're required to add them, they might just add the numerators and denominators. The, the fraction associated with the ratio is the rate. And that distinction between ratios and rates is important. Another thing I would point out is that the noun proportion occurs nowhere in the standards. The adjective proportional applied to the noun relationships occurs. So there's a whole history of setting up proportions and techniques for setting up proportions going back hundreds of years. And that becomes a sort of ritual activity that kids learn in middle school that then is completely unrelated to what they do in high school. Which sort of makes no sense because if you understand everything in terms of proportional relationships, 
if in every problem you say what's the y and what's the x, what's the quantity, um, what are the two quantities that are related in a proportional relationship here, and what's the constant k in y equals kx, what's the rate, you can answer any proportion problem by using that understanding. And so we've tried to set up this idea of moving from ratios to proportional relationships to linear functions in a way that there's a continuity there, that the work with proportional relationships isn't just some weird excursion you did in middle school that you then forget about how to do. So is it fair to say, you know, I, when I was in the classroom, my, my instinct when I heard ratio was, was similar to what you've described, right? I want it's, to, it's sort of the study of these equations that we call proportions and there's maybe there's some cross multiplying going on right it's a very common ritual as you say so is the advantage the advantage to not doing that is to build a foundation that is better connected to what's happening in later years is that, that the yes okay. and also better connected to the sort of reasoning people have to do in the real world I mean what's the most common application of mathematics kids learn in school it's to situations where you have a proportional relationship you have to calculate a tip you have to calculate a tax rate um, you have to see how much money you're going to earn if you invest something um, for a year you have to know that 5% increase means multiplying by 1.05 proportional relationships are everywhere, but I think a lot of people who set up proportions never connect that. Just to take a concrete example, take a very standard sort of problem where you're talking about mixing you know, blue paint with red paint, two cups blue to three cups red, and you want to make more of it. Like suppose you have uh, five cups of blue paint and you want to know how much red to make the same color. So that's a standard classic setting up proportion, two, three, five, question mark. And you know, people set this up and cross multiply and they find out what the question mark is. I can think of that differently. I can think, okay, there's a proportional relationship here between the quantity of blue and the quantity of red paint. And I know that the amount of red paint I use is three halves times the amount of blue paint. So three halves, that's my unit rate. Oh, I've got, you know, five cups of uh, blue paint, I'm going to multiply that by three halves to get the quantity of red paint. So I just, by the way, probably did the same operations there, like the, the person who was cross-multiplying did, but they were operations that had meaning that had come out of a conceptualization of the problem as a proportional relationship. So that's, that's a really nice thing to see sort of where, where ratios go, right? Where, 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 where does that um, carry forward? How about the foundations, right? I know the, the concept of ratios introduced in grade six, but there's some important prerequisites for that in, in 3.5 and maybe in, in K2. What are some of those foundational ideas? Well, I mean, I do think ratios are a new idea in grade six, but in order to work with them, you need to be able to do the arithmetic, and then particularly in in grade six, they're working with ratios where the unit rate is a whole, where the quantities are in the ratio are uh, whole numbers, but in grade seven, they're working with quantities, ratios where the quantities are uh, fractions. And so they need to be able to operate with fractions. I would say all of the work with number is an important prerequisite. Work with finding unknown factors in solving word problems, that comes into play when the students start working with what I call you know, traditional proportion problems. 
you know, really, I would say the foundations in K5 are the, for ratios and proportional relationships are, are the sort of number of operations in base 10 and operations in algebraic thinking domains. Great. So let's talk about another content area, and this is uh, geometry in grade 8, mm -hmm. which is another interesting spot in the standard. So in particular, there's a, a cluster 8GA, right? Mm -hmm. Understand congruence and similarity using physical models, transparencies, or geometry software. And this is one that I think I've had a lot of conversations with, with people about. But, but what's important to note about uh, eighth grade geometry, particularly the work with, with congruence and transformations? Yeah, so the work with congruence and transformations is one of the innovations in the standards that has drawn a lot of comment. People think of it as something mysterious, as I tend to think of it as something that's demystifying congruence. People often think of the use of transformations as something mysterious. I think of it as a way of demystifying congruence. There's a very straightforward, intuitive idea of what it means for two figures to be congruent. Namely, you can place one on top of the other and they match up exactly. That's, in fact, Euclid's idea of what it means for them to be congruent. Then you derive from that idea the criteria for congruence that students traditionally learn the um, criteria for congruence of triangles in terms of angles and sides. Uh, you derive the criteria for congruence of more complicated figures that all the side, corresponding sides are congruent, corresponding angles are congruent. Congruence is often taught as if that's the definition, which seems weird to me because it's sort of complicated. Whereas the simple definition, namely I can move these two figures and put one on top of the other, that's very intuitive. Now, you want to make that a little more precise, so you start talking about translations, rotations, and reflections. Those are just the types of movements that you can perform. And then you start learning to reason with those transformations. But I think it can be a very intuitive thing, and I think it can make life more uh, simpler for the teacher. It can make it more engaging for the student to approach congruence that way. I do want to point out, for people who like the traditional geometry curriculum, you can get there very quickly. Once you've defined congruence in terms of transformations, you can derive the traditional congruence criteria. You don't do that formally in grade eight. Grade eight should be mostly about informal, intuitive approaches, hands-on approaches to build for the work in high school. But you can have a fairly traditional approach to geometry by building on that foundation of um, transformations. The only difference is you're building on a more intuitive and appealing foundation. And you started to touch on, a, on, I think, a common question, which is because there is uh, some similar standards in grade 8 and then in the geometry category in high school, could you say a little bit more about sort of how you see those one leading to the other? Maybe what's the difference between the study of, of transformations in grade 8 versus high school? I think in grade, eight, in grade in high school, you're, you're, you're expecting more formality in the argumentation. You're expecting students to be able to construct sequences of logical statements that prove a theorem or that prove a statement. In, high, in a grade 8, I think students might be working more with physical representations or with uh, technological representations of the transformations and talking through what they're doing. So that's rehearsal for the more formal argumentation in high school, but it's not as rigorous, I would say, 
The notational complexities of geometry arguments can be quite burdensome if you start putting letters on everything and primes on the letters. I would say there should be less of that or even none of that in grade 8 or only what's necessary and what arises out of the need for making an argument. I think the difference really is mainly just in the level of formality. And of course, you go further in high school, you prove theorems that you don't prove in grade 8. Great. So I want to talk a little bit about the high school standards and particularly in the algebra category, two domains uh, that I think are interesting. One of them is ACED, which is the creating equations domain, and the other is AREI, which is the uh, reasoning with equations and inequalities. So obviously, algebra work with equations, they've been sort of a staple of, of high school math for a long time. Tell us a little bit about these domain names what, what should we notice and maybe how they, how they might shape instruction? Sure. So creating equations means just that. That is to say, I want students to be able to think of a situation involving a relationship between two quantities and think through what that relationship is numerically or quantitatively and from that thinking through write down y equals some operation on x that they've thought through, or it's a situation where you have two varying quantities that satisfy a constraint. I want them to be able to write down that constraint equation relating x and y, where the equal sign means something to them. That is, uh, they've understood there's uh, five of these and three of those are always equal to 20, so 5x plus 3y is equal to 20. So that's a creative act. And I think sometimes people think that the equation is just sort of somehow a given thing that you should manipulate, that it has to be in a certain form, that you get it by extracting some numbers from the context and sticking them onto some variables and hoping you've done the right thing. But the idea that an equation is a description of a relationship that you can think through, um, and from that you can derive the equation, I think that's a very powerful idea. And so emphasizing that in that cluster heading is, is, is an attempt to signal that, what I just said. The same goes for solving equations. Solving equations is an act of reasoning. When your students write down the solution of a, an equation as a series of steps, the most important aspect of that process isn't written anywhere. Namely, it's the reason you can go from here to here. That if 5x equals 15, that means x equals 15 over 3, why is that true? Well, it's because 15 over 5 is by definition the number that when I multiply it by 5, I get 15. So every single step is like a logical deduction. Uh, when you solve an equation, you're proving a theorem, really, and emphasizing that there's a reason you can go from one step to the next, and understanding that solving equations is a process of reasoning, not a procedure, I think is important. So in the classroom, I think the, the first question that comes up uh, related to that reasoning um, idea that you're describing is, what does that look like? Does that mean that I, you know, I ask my students to 
explain every step every time? Is it is it um, is it the more about laying a foundation that that we move from, or what 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 does it look like? Oh well, no. I mean, you can overdo it, right? You can have these formal schemes where you have to write the justification next to every step, and then that just becomes another procedure without meaning. I know I'm supposed to write this statement when I do this step, but like I don't know why I'm writing the statement. So you can course proceduralize everything and I should say procedure is important eventually you do want a quick and easy procedure that you execute fluently fluency is important procedures important but it's easier to remember procedures if you once understood the reason for them and if they have meaning for you and if you could reconstruct it an example I like to give my prospective teachers is I give them an example of an incorrect solution of a quadratic equation where uh, a student executes a step at the beginning, you have something like a quadratic equation written in standard form and the student moves the constant over to the other side and then tries to factor the left-hand side and then equate the factors with the factors of the constant. Incorrect method. But my question is, where is the incorrect step? Was it, and, and this is a good way of distinguishing students who think of solving as reasoning and who think of solving as a procedure. Because the correct, the step of moving the constant over to the other side is, turns out in the example, I give not to be incorrect. I mean, it's true that if x squared minus 3x minus 5 equals 0, then x squared minus 3x equals 5. That's a true statement. It's not a reasoning error. It's a procedural error. It's an unproductive step to make procedurally. It gets you into trouble later on. But the logical error happens much later on, where the student attempts to equate factors of the expression on the left with factors of the number on the right. And so if you understand the difference between a procedural error and a reasoning error, I think then you're less prone to making errors because you know that every time you do something, you have to have a justification for being able to do it. So from your vantage point, your extensive experience doing this work, leading the work with the standards, what's, what's the big project that, that we need to take on? Is it, is it curriculum? Is it teacher training? I mean, I'm sure it's some combination of all these things, but maybe if you had a magic wand and, and could sort of put into action a single project, what would it be? Well, I mean, I've made a choice there, you know, last year mathematics is writing curriculum. I also think teacher preparation and teacher education is hugely important. So, of course, there are lots of, lots of important steps to make. I think mostly people should just pick something and do it. One of, the, one of the things that happens in education as an enterprise is everybody likes to despair and likes to spend their time saying they can't solve problems because some other problem hasn't been solved. Everyone likes to blame somebody else. I call it the merry-go-round of other people's problems. I can't do this because first I need that person to do that, and then I need... Well, eventually it comes back to you, the circle of blame. And so, sure, you know, education's a complex activity. There's plenty of improvement, room for improvement, and there's plenty to do. So, no, there's no one thing, um, but, you know, pick something and do it.